You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 27, Krupp Steel Part 10, Alfred Krupp, or We Were No Traitors. Today I'm recording from the Nuremberg Justice Palast. This episode brought to you by Otis Elevators. When you rise, we shine. If we're ranking the excuses of the Nazis, the most commonly used one would definitely be, I didn't see it, or I didn't know it was happening, which sometimes that excuse holds up, but certainly less than its popularity would allow. At the other end of the spectrum, there's rarer excuses like, they made me do it, or I secretly opposed the regime, both of which are used less frequently because they're lamer and more niche, though you'd certainly see see it quite a bit still. But the gold standard for excuses would definitely be, I was just following orders. That's the defense that almost every Nazi used in the years following the war. It's the favorite go-to when you're actually pinned down about having committed a particular crime, when I didn't see it can't hold up, and when you cannot credibly claim that they forced you or that you secretly opposed the Nazis. Now, most of these arguments do not hold water, legally speaking, and none of them are justifications for committing war crimes. If we look at Alfred Krupp, we are going to see that he relied on a double bind of I was just following orders and what I did was not that bad, depending on the particular circumstance, because he could not reliably attempt the I didn't know defense. As we will see, none of them hold up particularly well. Let's get into it. So the first wave of Nuremberg trials. The first wave is sometimes called the main trial of the major war criminals before the International Military Tribunal, right? Then there were subsequent waves of trials. The first trials took place over one year, 1945 to 1946, and this first wave involved 24 different defendants. At several points during these proceedings, we are going to see some very, very interesting legal bungling on the parts of the Americans, specifically. And this legal bungling ends up saving Alfred Krupp. For instance, two key pieces of information simply didn't make it. I'm doing air quotes. You can't see me, dear listener, but here I am doing air quotes. These two pieces of information did not make it to the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Robert H. Jackson. The two pieces of information were the medical state of Gustav Krupp von Bullen und Halbach, which is to say, vegetal. He was not doing well. He was completely senile by that point. And the other piece of information was that the Allies required Alfred, not Gustav Krupp, to be tried for Krupp Company war crimes. In both cases, Justice Jackson didn't get the memos, like literally physically didn't receive them, for no good reason, and Gustav Krupp was therefore put on trial in the first trial, only to be found no decision due to his paralyzed, basically senile state, which was not an act. Alfred Krupp, on the other hand, was knocked down from the first Nuremberg trial to the second string of trials. The second string, or second wave, 
is sometimes called the subsequent Nuremberg trials. The second string included the Krupp trial, as well as the Flick and IG Farben trials. Now, the Krupp trial ended up happening from 1947 to 1948. Alfred Krupp being tried in the second string of trials literally bought him more time, and it kept him from being associated with the worst of the worst in the first string, like Bormann, Donitz, Frank, Frick, Frisch, Funk, Goring, Hess, Yodel, Kaltenbrunner, Keitel, Ribbentrop, Spear, and so on. Now, you could say this was just an accident, right? The chaos of war and all that. And they did hold some of the other industrialist trials after the first string of war criminals too, so it's not exactly unprecedented. But let's get to the end of the story before we decide. So, when they held the Krupp trial, starting 1947, there were 12 directors from Krupp put on trial. There was Alfred Krupp, owner and chief executive officer. There was Evold Luger as former chief financial officer. They put on trial the then-current chief financial officer. They put on trial two former heads of sales, two heads of steel production, the head of arms fabrication, the head of personnel, the head of counterintelligence, Friedrich von Bülow, previously mentioned in episode 25, he was like the head slaver, basically, the head of labor procurement, doing air quotes again, and the head of the workers' camps, which is to say the slave labor camps. Now, they were charged for four different things. First, they were charged for crimes against peace by participating in the planning and waging of wars of aggression and in wars in violation of international treaties. Second, they were charged with crimes against humanity by participating in the plundering, devastation, and exploitation of occupied countries. Third, they were charged with crimes against humanity by participating in the murder, extermination, enslavement, deportation, imprisonment, torture, and use of slave labor of civilians who came under German control, German nationals, and prisoners of war. Fourth, of participating in a common plan or conspiracy to make crimes against peace. Now, the first and the fourth were dropped due to lack of evidence, and so they're sort of nebulous anyway. So the main charges were the second and third, which is to say that they plundered occupied countries, that's the second, and the third, that they participated in, mur in murder, extermination, and slave labor. To sum it up, the second and third being things you could prove, and the first and fourth, you know, not as much. Now, if we will recall, on trial was Evold Luger, who had a very interesting career. We talked about him in episode 25. He was the guy recruited by Gustav Krupp, and he was part of the Kleinkreis, which opposed Hitler and sought to assassinate him. Luger was in communication, in radio communication, with Alan Dulles during the war. Lerger had fled to Switzerland, then returned, only to find himself more and more pushed out of the Krupp concern. Ultimately, he left, and for a time he was managing a firm in Holland. He was arrested after the arrests of all the Krupp members, but Lerger was implicated in running the slave camps. Lerger maintained his innocence, but he was definitely guilty. 
during the trial, just about the only time Alfred Krupp got upset was when he heard Evald Luger maintain his innocence. Luger was probably one of the least guilty people on trial, though, to be fair, but not by much. He was still definitely a war criminal. So before we get into the trial, let's talk about the context of the trials. If people were mad at Germany after World War I, and they were, public opinion was even angrier after World War II. As we will see, this position was not necessarily shared by those in government and the military, although many of them did. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, for instance, really did seem to want to punish the Nazis and the war machine. But we are stuck in a sort of Abraham Lincoln situation as Roosevelt was not able to oversee the Nuremberg trials. The United States' initial plan was to de-industrialize the Ruhr Valley, which would have been remarkable. For one thing, it would have more or less eliminated the corrupt concerns. Henry Morgenthau Jr., the Secretary of the Treasury, is often cited as the man who wanted to de-industrialize the Ruhr. There was the Morgenthau Plan, named after him, but he was not the only one advocating this position. At a certain point, almost every major U.S. decision-maker backed the idea. Many of the Allied powers held similar positions. For example, a British occupation government representative said, Out there, gentlemen, no chimney will ever smoke again. Where the cast steel factory once stood, there will be shrubs and meadows and parks. The British military government has decided to finish Krupp forever. That is all, gentlemen. The U.S. State Department was even considering making an independent Ruhr-Rhineland state, including forced deportation of Germans. I bet you never hear much about that in schools. There was also a concerted effort to seize Ruhr Valley industrial property in retribution for their crimes. After all, much of the industry that was there was literally stolen, and in some cases they were just retrieving their property and equipment back. There were major seizures of equipment and components and even, you know, whole factories by the USSR, the British, the US, and the French. Though the French did not get very much because they had fewer boots on the ground occupying Germany. The seizures from the Allied powers caused more damage to the Ruhr Valley's industry than all of the bombing campaigns combined, which perhaps is more evidence to support the idea that the RAF and the U.S. Air Force did not target factories. Now, we do not have a list of all the dismantled German factories, but we do have some basic figures. We know that the seizures cost the Krupp firm more than all of the air raid damage, and we know that 130,000 tons of finished machinery went right to the USSR. 150,000 tons of scrap went to the United Kingdom. And 9 out of every 10 buildings that Alfred Krupp had inherited in 1943 were now gone. Henry Morgenthau Jr. also wanted to break up the German cartels and trusts. This would have had even more far-reaching effects than deindustrializing the Ruhr, if you can believe it. General Lucius Clay said, We prepared a law to break up the cartels and excessive concentrations of power and submitted it to the Allied Control Council. This was back when both political parties still respected 
and practiced trust-busting, at least theoretically. Now, the Germans have never understood Americans' mania for trust-busting, both on ideological and practical levels, and there are some valid reasons for this. On the ideological level, it makes sense that industries would band together, especially in the German context, given their precarious situation so dependent on their exports, on their export market. On the practical level, it had been that way for decades, and as J.P. Morgan said, you can't unscramble eggs. Some people thought it would literally be impossible to trust bus Krupp, to say nothing of something like I.G. Farben. I.G. Farben, as a reminder, was literally a collection of different trusts. It boggles the mind. And this was also in the era when the Nazis were still running to the hills. There were Nazis escaping through rat lines set up by the United States, by the OSS, and by the Vatican. Tens of thousands of Nazis fled to Egypt, Spain, and Latin America. Smaller numbers of high-profile Nazis, usually scientists and technicians, were taken to the U.S. and the USSR. And, of course, the USSR still had large numbers of prisoners of war. Now let's talk about the trial. Krupp's defense spent a lot of time fighting in the realm of public opinion, not as much time defending Krupp in actual legal terms. Which, this tactic makes sense because there really wasn't a lot to defend on legal grounds. For instance, Krupp's lawyers blamed their own prosecution on the fact that several of the prosecutors were German Jews. You know, this has nothing to do with Krupp's guilt, but it has a whole lot to do with winning over German public opinion, and to a lesser extent, international public opinion. And in the short run, this probably damaged their case, but in the long run, it mattered quite a bit in the years to follow. Speaking of public opinion, as you might expect, it was pretty divided over the Krupp trial. The German public, for the most part, supported the Krupp defendants. The U.S. public was divided, but not in the way you might think. There was some small silent holdouts that supported Krupp, namely U.S. oil company executives and America First types, and then most of the U.S. public believed that the Krupp defendants were guilty. But what divided public opinion was very interesting. What divided public opinion was over which crimes were more reprehensible. Get this. Why, the poors and the media that reflected poor people, or or perhaps I should say working-class and middle-class people, they naturally thought that the worst crimes that the Krupp concern had committed related to slave labor and the abuse of prisoners of war. The business community and the media that reflected their interests thought that Krupp's wartime expropriations, that Krupp's wartime expropriations of property was the worst crime, just as you might expect, in fact. Now, we've talked about how there was an overwhelming amount of evidence to condemn Alfred Krupp and his subordinates, but there were still surprises during the trial. One big one came when they were talking about the Krupp concerns holdings in Reich Treasury bonds. So in 1942, the Krupp company had bought more than 200 million marks in the Reich Treasury bonds, in Reich Treasury bonds. But this was a precarious investment. Krupp's CFO, Dr. Friedrich Janssen, said 
we must make our financial position so strong that after the war, we can reconstruct these shops from our own funds. Consequently, they started liquidating these bonds. This policy was continued by Alfred Krupp when he took over the company. Now, quasi-secretly, they sold off 162 of the 200 million Reich Treasury bonds by the end of the war, leaving 68 million marks to essentially become worthless paper. That's what happens when you lose a war, right? Now, when the CFO explained why they did not sell off all the bonds at once, he said, why, that would have smacked too much of defeatism. Everyone at the Justice Palast was silent, realizing and thinking about what the CFO was saying. Then, Dr. Yonason realized how it sounded, and he shouted, We were no traitors. Incidentally, it was the sell-off of these bonds that was financing their legal defense, which, although it had its hands tied, the legal defense was top-notch. While this trial went on for eight months, towards the end of the trial, the Berlin blockade was occurring, so tensions became very high with the Soviets at the time. This freaked everyone out during the trial, as war literally could have theoretically broken out during this crisis. At least, it was not an impossibility. Speaking of tensions with the Soviets, the Soviets were very unhappy with the first string of Nuremberg trials, since they, quite rationally in my opinion, expected every single Nazi on trial to hang. They were extremely upset when the tribunal sentenced Hess, Funk, Donitz, Raider, and Speer, and von Neurath to jail. And they released Schott, von Papen, and Fritsch outright. The Soviets stormed out of the Justice Palast and announced that they would, from then on, hold their own trials. At this same time, and as the Cold War, which, as an interjection, it was never a foregone conclusion that the Cold War would even happen, or that it would play out the way it did. Nothing is ever a foregone conclusion. As the Cold War started to heat up, the Allies began to break rank with the idea of holding the Nazis accountable for their crimes. The United States began to broker deals with West Germany to create a bulwark state against Soviet encroachment as they saw it. To do this, this required cutting deals with the German ruling class, which effectively meant cutting deals with Nazis. Now, I am simplifying a historical process that would take more than one book's worth of study. This was a vastly complex thing happening. Still, the first part of the United States to break ranks with holding Nazis accountable was U.S. intelligence. Next, it was the U.S. Army. Then, certain U.S. politicians, while others wanted to keep the heat on the Nazis. For example, the State Department opposed these deals being made. Now, the Columbia Law Review covered the Krupp case very closely. Columbia Law, if you'll remember, employed Boris Brossel, the incredibly sus white Russian. Now, would it surprise you to find out that the Columbia Law Review was reporting facts wrong in a way that probably constituted intentional lying rather than accidental mistakes. And we're not talking about insignificant lies either. 
In January 1953, Professor Heinrich Kronstein of the Georgetown Law Review said that Krupp selected an attorney, an American attorney of good standing, a lawyer named Carroll, but that the International Military Tribunal refused to admit the American lawyer and appointed ex officio a German substitute, unquote. Now, this makes it sound like the tribunal did not allow foreign lawyers to represent Krupp, but that is not what happened. Krupp already had several foreign lawyers working on his case. It was only one lawyer who was not approved to join the team. In the same article by Professor Kronstein, he was also reviewing a book by Tilo von Vilmoski, we mentioned before, Gustav Krupp's brother-in-law, and Professor Kronstein somehow neglects to mention that Tilo von Vilmoski was Gustav Krupp's brother-in-law. Sketchy happenings at Columbia Law, apparently. So when the sentences finally came down, Alfred Krupp was sentenced to 12 years in prison and the total confiscation of his company. As for the rest, we've got Evald Luger, 7 years, the head of steel, 10 years, the head of arms, 12 years, the chief financial officer received 10 years, the head of sales, not guilty, the head of personnel and intelligence, 9 years, another head of sales, 9 years, the department head of steel, 6 years, counterintelligence, that is to say the Von Bülow guy, he received 12 years, the head of labor procurement, 6 years, and the head of workers camps, 3 years, but with time served, he was free at the end of the trial. I will let you draw your own conclusions about how I feel about these sentences. For my part, I will withhold stating my opinion till just a little bit later. For context, at this time, thousands of Germans were going through denazification courts for lesser crimes, and many of them were getting slapped with $500 fines. This sounds relatively light, and it was, but it was functionally a harsher sentence than most of the corrupt defendants got, because 500 American dollars was often enough to completely wipe out the savings of the average German Nazi. So you see that even when they're on trial for horrific transnational crimes of theft and murder, the rich still end up better off than the average chud who joined the Nazi party and ended up in front of a routine denazification court. Alfred Krupp's initial appeals were denied, and he went on to stay in prison. Most of the physical property that remained to the Krupp concern was in the British zone, and the British did not fully confiscate what remained of his property. It's an open question as to why. One definite reason is because there was mounting pressure from the international business community in defense of Alfred Krupp. But, by now, if you've listened to 27 episodes of this show and don't know what I think of the British, well, I don't know what to do with you. The Krupp Company was being run by Tilo von Vilmoski and the board of directors. They had switched by now to peacetime steel production. Gustav Krupp somehow lived on until 1950 when he finally died. His death revealed the existence of the Lex Krupp to the public. And mind you, Alfred Krupp was still in prison at this time. There was an outcry, but it remained on the books in West Germany. German Reconstruction, apart from the conditions in East Germany and with the Soviets, 
German reconstruction in the West was based around the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan did not punish Germany in the same ways that the Versailles Treaty had, you know, after World War I. That's pretty cool, although, as you probably know, it was not exactly due to pure Christian charity. This was during the context of the Cold War, where the United States wanted West Germany to be a bulwark against the Soviets, right? In the years that followed, West Germany went through an economic boom period. Their government provided liberal tax credits, which probably spurred economic growth, and the Allied occupation did not squash, but instead encouraged the German export economy. To this day, Germany heavily depends on their manufacturing and exports. The Marshall Plan funds did not get spent in the Ruhr Valley, so German heavy industry did not directly prosper from it. These were lean times for German heavy industry, and German light industry is what was booming. And while the Allied occupation could not entirely trust bust or clip the wings of the biggest cartels, many smaller cartels were broken, and Germany did not have to spend on their military budgets, so it's not exactly crazy that they had an economic boom. Now, the Fatherland Liberation War, also known as the Korean War, broke out in 1950, and it was this conflict that changed everything for the convicted Krupp war criminals. For one thing, German defense spending went way up, as they could and did make contributions to the war efforts. This defense spending, some of it subsidized by NATO, formed in 1949, and funded by the U.S., started to shower German heavy industry again, including the Krupp company. What did Nietzsche say about the eternal return? Also, if you're a Nietzsche scholar, do not DM me about how I'm abusing this term. I know, it's a joke. Do not DM me. The New York Times pointed out that reviving Ruhr Valley industry and holding down the industrialists were conflicting goals. You don't say. So an interesting thing started to happen at Landsberg Prison in 1951. That's where Alfred Krupp had the pleasure of residing. The Krupp Directorate started to meet there with Alfred Krupp. In attendance were officials from the West German government and NATO. In fact, Alfred Krupp might have the distinction of having the highest security clearance in penal history, as he was issued one in order to discuss the growing heavy industry war effort in Korea. So guess what they decided to do with Alfred Krupp? Why they pardoned him, of course. And let's definitely talk about that for a minute. The pardon included two things. First, it let Alfred Krupp out of prison. And second, it reversed the confiscation order for the Krupp concerns to be seized and parceled out. No one can pinpoint exactly who decided to pardon Krupp and when and why. This was an odious decision, and everyone involved rightfully tried to avoid responsibility. So the only answer, the only answer we're left with, is that the decision to pardon Alfred Krupp probably happened in a shadowy, smoke-filled room full of powerful people. Not to sound too conspiratorial for you, dear listener, but it was probably an agreement between several powerful cliques who knew not to put their names on anything. When Alfred Krupp was pardoned, but not acquitted, they wouldn't go that far. The press tried to argue that Alfred Krupp was but a misguided youth during World War II. For reference, in 1939, 
Alfred Krupp was 32 years old, not exactly a youth. Alfred Krupp was a year younger than General Telford Taylor, the chief Nuremberg prosecutor. Alfred Krupp was the same age as Martin Bormann, Heinrich Himmler, Reinhard Heydrich, and Adolf Eichmann. I could chalk this up to the Lion news media, except that this is also one of the justifications that the authorities used in pardoning him. When Alfred Krupp was released, the man who had to actually carry out the decision and have his name on things was U.S. High Commissioner John J. McCloy. He said that there was reasonable doubt that Alfred Krupp was responsible for the policies of the Krupp company in which he occupied a rather junior position. Now this is patently untrue. This is like a direct lie. Alfred Krupp was literally running the Krupp company through World War II. The Allies knew it. Everyone knew it. That's obviously why he was put on trial. So, Alfred Krupp was pardoned in 1951, which meant that he served something like four years in prison, depending on whether you're counting by his arrest or by his sentencing. What's more, get this, literally every other person convicted in the Krupp trial was also pardoned, except, 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 get this, except for Evald Lurger, literally the least guilty guy, <laughs> though still a guilty war criminal, Evald Lurger ended up serving his full sentence seven years and was released in 1955. Literally the guy who tried to assassinate Hitler, the only one who could reliably claim that he was anti-Nazi in any capacity. He's the guy that doesn't get pardoned. Now, when asked if the Korean War had anything to do with Alfred Krupp's release, John J. McCloy said, there's not a goddamn word of truth in the charge that Krupp's release was inspired by the outbreak of the Korean War. No lawyer told me what to do and it wasn't political. It was a matter of my conscience. But hey, let's talk about John J. McCloy for a second. Now, to spare you a full biography, and John J. McCloy would make a great episode at some point. I would probably want to read a biography of him, though. John J. McCloy went to Amherst, then to Harvard Law. Then he fought in World War I. Then he worked at Cadwallader, Wickersham, and Taft, one of the nation's most prestigious law firms at the time. Then he worked at Cravath, Henderson, and Degersdorf, another prestigious law firm. John J. McCloy did a lot of work for I.G. Farben, which earned him a small fortune. Then McCloy was made Assistant Secretary of War during World War II, and he was on the task force that created the Pentagon, as well as the Office of Strategic Services, the United Nations, and the International Military Tribunal. He sat on what was the predecessor to the National Security Council. Now, John J. McCloy was not from intergenerational vampire wasp stock, so they made him the Axeman for the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. He had a real skill for doing dirty jobs. McCloy convinced President Truman to reject the Morgenthau Plan, which, as a reminder, was the plan to strip Germany of its industrial capacity in the Ruhr Valley. McCloy later served as president of the World Bank and went on to serve as chairman of the Chase Manhattan Bank and chairman of the Ford Foundation. 
He was also a trustee on the Rockefeller Foundation. He was a chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations and for the Atlantic Institute. And this one is my personal favorite. He served on the Warren Commission. At the end of his life, he was partner at Millbank Tweed, Hadley, and McCloy, where he worked directly with the Seven Sisters Oil Companies. In short, he was about as connected as it gets. And you do not get some of these positions and opportunities if you won't, you know, pardon some war criminals every now and then. Also, as a side note, John J. McCloy also protected Klaus Barbie, the Butcher of Leon, covering for him in a variety of ways. Klaus Barbie worked with the OSS and the CIA, and then moved to Bolivia. He was involved in the cocaine coup of 1980, before he was finally captured by French commandos and put on trial in France. Along the same lines, McCloy was in charge of picking West German intelligence, and instead of picking, like, literally anyone else, like, literally just even someone unqualified, instead he picked Reinhard Galen the former head of SS intelligence and known war criminal. If you'll notice a pattern here, McCloy was doing all of the dirty jobs for the evil wasps that run this country. Now, there is so much more to John J. McCloy, but maybe for another day. We gotta stay focused on Krupp here. So here's a question. Why? Why pardon Alfred Krupp? Now, that's a good question. John J. McCloy didn't just pardon the Krupp defendants outright. What he did, to provide a veneer of legality, was that he reopened their cases and sent them to an appellate board. McCloy points to this as proof that the pardons were unrelated to the Korean War. But, much like the entire process, this was a curious appeals process, as McCloy got qualified judges and then put them in an impossible position. He gave them seven months to review one case, and that case was the equivalent of five judicial years worth of effort. The transcript alone, not including the documents and briefs, were ten times the length of the unabridged Webster's Dictionary. It reached a full 330 pages, which would have been 110 feet tall if stacked. Now, they had seven months just to read through that, to say nothing of everything else. Even crazier, the Krupp legal team was allowed to address the appellate team, but the prosecution was not. Now that is an almost unprecedented breach in any law across, in any type of law. Now, even in full clemency pardons, prosecution is still usually involved in some capacity. The prosecutor, the aforementioned Telford Taylor, he said, None of these elementary and established practices were observed by Mr. McCloy. He was quite mad. Like, this appellate board literally didn't even try to reach out to the prosecution. General Taylor, in fact, didn't even know that this appeal was going on. But he said that he absolutely would have showed up and participated, even forced himself to be included, if he had known. Now, by accident, one of Nuremberg's senior prosecutors happened to still be stationed in the same town as the appellate court reviewing the Krupp trial. This man's name was Benjamin Ferengs. He had also fought in World War II and liberated one of the concentration camps. When he found out about the appeal, he wrote to them saying he was free to assist in any capacity they wanted. They turned him down. 
He was curious, and from time to time he would drop in on their deliberations. He said that he saw the records of the Krupp trial packed in crates six feet long, shaped weirdly kind of like coffins. He wondered if they would open and read the records. Then, when he saw that Alfred Krupp was freed, he went over to see if they ever opened up those cases. They hadn't even opened the boxes. Now, to be fair, these judges were put in an impossible situation, and it was a monumental task. A top-notch speed reader, absorbing 1,200 words a minute, could not get through the Nuremberg transcripts in less than 17 months. But John J. McCloy, presumably forced to pardon the war criminals, put the appellate judges in a tough situation, because, you know, shit always flows downhill. When the news of the pardons reached Senator Joseph McCarthy, McCarthy nodded and said, extremely wise. On the flip side, Eleanor Roosevelt wrote to McCloy, the High Commissioner, and she asked, why are we freeing so many Nazis? Why indeed? Under U.S. law, governors often choose to spare the condemned, but they rarely pardon prisoners, and they never appoint an appellate court to review the decisions of a different appellate court. They can't. It's literally illegal. But that's what McCloy did. McCloy told Eleanor Roosevelt that, unlike criminal cases in the United States and England, there was no provision for further court review of these cases for possible errors or fact after the court of first instance passed upon them. But, but... McCloy was either unaware or lying, take your pick which, because precisely such a review had already been conducted. And at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself whether one of the most prominent lawyers in the country and one of the most connected and powerful people, John J. McCloy, whether he made such a huge and basic legal mistake or whether he knew what he was doing. I, of course, believe in the latter interpretation. So, after the pardons went through, running with the Alfred Krupp was an irresponsible youth theory, they started to also cast him as a playboy who didn't have an interest in running the Krupp company. But if he was just a playboy, why free him? Now, the ruling that freed Alfred Krupp also explicitly left the Lex Krupp active. Even worse, the ruling called into question Alfred Krupp's guilt at all. In another almost completely unprecedented set of behaviors, the appellate court used already rejected arguments of convicted defendants. Now, there's a long list of examples in the book, The Arms of Krupp. I'm not a legal scholar or a lawyer, but it seems truly unprecedented. When William Manchester, the author of the book, The Arms of Krupp, and the absolute madman himself, he presented an audit of discrepancies to John J. McCloy. McCloy reportedly read through them carefully and then handed them back, saying, that's ancient history. Also, lest I be accused of being too harsh to the Columbia Law Review, here's a quote from another scholar writing in the Columbia Law Review comparing the release of Alfred Krupp to Shakespeare's Richard III. Krupp stood before the record of his trial as blood-stained Gloucester stood by the body of his slain king. Gloucester begged of the widow, as Krupp begged, Say I slew them not. And the queen replied, Then say they were not slain, but dead they are. 
If you were to say that Krupp was not guilty, it would be as true as to say that there had been no Auschwitz fuse factory, no company concentration camps, no Rothschilds gassed, no basement torture cage, no infant corpses, no slain, no crime, and no war. When Alfred Krupp left prison, he walked out and found that he had become a national hero. And on that note, I must say that I used the books The Arms of Krupp, The House of Krupp, and Blood and Steel, as well as some Nuremberg documents. Thank you for listening, dear listener. Just tell people about the show if you like it, and check out my Patreon, where I do extra content if you like what you're hearing. Now, I need to be on my way. I'm headed to Nassau. See you next week, and God bless.